City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, producing... This is an American Theatre Wing seminar on working in the theatre. It's coming to you from the Graduate Center, the City University of New York, which is located on 42nd Street. 42nd Street, where Off-Broadway and Off-Off-Broadway all meet to present their wares, to present their talent, and present quality theatre so that they nurture, they feed each other, all to the benefit of the audience. The American Theatre Wing is very proud of its Tony Award, which is not for the longest run or the greatest um, review, but it's for it, a recognition of the achievement of excellence in the theatre. And that's very important. The audience is the beneficiary of that. And what the American Theatre Wing does is to continually try to feed theatre into the audience's and into the communities. We have a year-round organization. We say theater. We are dedicated to servicing the community through the theater, through our Saturday Theater for Children program, which is just that. We bring live professional theater into elementary schools, and children line up to see professional theater at a very early age. We have our introduction to Broadway Theatre, which is a very important and a very wonderful program. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of youngsters have come to see their first Broadway play. We, are, we do this program in cooperation with the New York City Board of Education, Junior and High School Division, and the wonderful generosity of the Broadway producers who have made it possible for the children to see this show and also not only to enhance their horizons and to learn a new language, but also, I hope, it provides the audience of the future. These seminars are brought to you because we feel that it's important to know what it is to work in the theater what it is to work in the theater through the eyes of the performer, the play script, the director, the scene designer, set designer, the producer, the unions and guilds, how to work with them and how they work for you. We believe in theater. We also send professional theater to hospitals and nursing homes and aid centers so that those who can't come to the theater have the theater brought to them. And this again is done because it's the American Theater Wing with the theater community. I'm indeed very proud to be part of an organization such as that that can call upon the people that we do, not only for the seminars, but also for our programs year-round. 
And now I'm going to turn this seminar over to our co-moderators, George White, who is president of the Eugene O'Neill uh, Center in New Waterford, Connecticut, and Brendan Gill, who has long been a New Yorker, an author, and a critic. And this seminar is on the production. We have the producers of that wonderful play, Damn Yankee, and we're going to ask them, it's a whole team of the production of Damn Yankee, and we're going to ask them all the questions, where it came from and how it got to where it is. Would you take this over now, Brendan and George? Thank you for coming. I'm singularly unfit to be a co-moderator of this program because I, as a child in 1927, gave up reading very much about baseball when my hero, my Yankee of that day, push him up, Tony Lazeria, was the main star of, of the whole baseball world. Things have changed, I understand, considerably since that time. But George White, not even born at that time, knows everything about baseball. On the, my, my far right is Rick Ellis, uh, who is, the, is officially the co-creative director of the Theatrical Advertising Agency of Serena Coyne. Uh, co-creative director is a very serious thing to be, but he shares uh, a position with God. And uh, he's also, also said... Also known as Nancy Coyne. <laughs> he is said also to be, in spite of his extreme youth, a former dancer and, and actor. I don't understand how that's possible. And singer. Uh, next uh, to Rick is Charlotte Wilcox, who's the general manager of the production. Broadway credits uh, for Charlotte include Grease, My Fair Lady, and Fiddler on the Roof. And on my immediate uh, right is another extremely tall young man. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, we, are, we are looking up to all of you this morning. Uh, and that's Mitchell Maxwell, who is the producer of the show and the president of something called Working Man Films. And Working is pronounced Working, and there was an apostrophe at the end, so he is pronouncing Working as it was pronounced in the 18th century, and I'm very grateful for that backward glance. <laughs> All right, Brendan, thank you. Um, I'm going to start off a little differently by starting on my immediate, le uh, my immediate left uh, with Mitchell Maxwell's sister, uh, Victoria, and we have Tinker's Evers and Chance, that's a whole other thing, <laughs> but we'll start with Tinker here, who is Victoria Maxwell, who is the producer, vice president in charge of production at Working Man Films. Uh, on her left is Peter Crumity, who is president of Crumity uh, & Company, an entertainment public relations firm, and uh, playing in left field. Actually, I think there's a chance it's first base. Chance, yeah. right. Frank Chance, <laughs> absolutely. Right. Uh, is Robert uh, Barandis, uh, who is a uh, partner of the New York law firm of Roper, Barandis & Fertile, who is uh, also the legal advisor to Damn Yankees. So that's, that's the lineup. Now, you said uh, before we came on this stage how interested you were in having a uh, seminar of this kind in order to uh, be able to tell all of us what the nature of a musical comedy production is. Young as you are, uh, like Rick, you look extremely young to me, you. but have you been in, the, in producing and how many, for how long, and is this the first major thing of this kind you've ever done? No, I, pr I produced uh, my first play in New York uh, in 1975. I was 21. It ran about an hour. I mean, the show ran longer than an hour, but the, the run was about an hour. It was down at the Cherry Lane Theater. 
This is, um, I've done about 15 shows off Broadway, and this is uh, uh, my second show on Broadway. And um, I started out much younger before this process began. Mm -hmm. And you were just out of school at 21. What were you, uh, I was actually was still in college. I was still in college and had spent a great deal of time in college <coughs> doing plays, directing plays, producing plays, and actually sold um, 50,000 shares of stock to kids in my dorm at a dollar a share, <laughs> and then bought a summer theater on Cape Cod in 1974 and produced and directed all the shows there for three years. And mm. Uh, in, a, in a wild state of hubris, uh, came to New York and produced a show in New York City. Did the SEC know about that? Oh, yes, it was fully registered. Fully oh, registered was. with the oh, SEC, well. and it was uh, you know, a filed offering. Robert was not my attorney at the time, so I spent several years in jail, I think. <laughs> but, uh, no, it was fully registered, and that's how I, I began. Victoria, did he, he drag you along with him right over the cliff, or to what? To the uh, Somerset Theater, actually. I was 12 years old, a costume mistress, yes, <laughs> ah, <laughs> at that okay. point. Where, but where I didn't work on the on his first off-Broadway show. No. Where was the Where was the show on the Cape? Where was the theater on the, the Cape? The theater was in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. it's, it was called the Priscilla Beach Theater. It was the uh, its, it's, its claim was that it was one either the oldest or one of the oldest summer uh, barn theaters in the country, and it was really quite lovely. It was really quite lovely, and. Um, it was really one of those things right out of the Judy Garland. Do you have it still? Oh, no. I uh, ran it for three years and then actually um, uh, got out uh, financially solvent, actually with a profit, by selling all the props and all the furniture uh, because it, we had two big uh, farmhouses on the grounds in which all the actors and the musicians, it was non-union, so all the, it's non-union, all the actors <laughs> and the uh, musicians lived in the houses. We gave them room and board and $15 a week. You're very entrepreneurial. Well, mm -hmm. uh, it started young. You might sell me your jacket before. I'd this be delighted. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan, it's you. It's yeah. right. uh, tell me, well, uh, and, and Victoria, too, we'll start uh, on the uh, producing team. Um, do you come from a, a background of theater, either of you, or did you, uh, did it, did you well, wake up one morning? A little bit about that. How did you get involved in this? Where uh, did you get the disease? Our, our folks uh, were uh, very, very much involved in community theater mm -hmm. and had produced... When I was uh, um, 8, 9, 10, 11, before Victoria was actually born, um, I produced Guys and Dolls in, summer in, in uh, community theater and Bells Are Ringing, and I worked the light board and was an usher and all that, got bit uh, with the bug then. And then when I was in um, uh, high school, I actually sold, I had a, a company called the Troubadour Theater, and I had eight kids in a van, and we, we uh, traveled around to summer camps <laughs> with sleeping bags, and we sold, I sold the uh, Guys and Dolls, the Fantastics, and Damn Yankees to the summer camps as a, a form of entertainment rather than taking the kids to a local movie or whatever. And we actually had a wonderful time. I did that for three years, and that's how I uh, earned enough money to go to college. It was very profitable on a risk-reward basis. It was very, very good. And we played um, three years, uh, and one summer we actually did 54 shows in 60 days. Uh, it was also non-union. <laughs> uh, uh, but that's, uh, that's how we, I got started, and that led to the summer theater. And then I spent some time in England working um, in all the um, uh, regional theaters in England, directing and learning how to produce. And then I came back to the States and started actively producing. And the first, the first uh, success, if you will, that I had was in 1978, and where I met Robert, who represented me on a Harvey Firestein play off-Broadway. Uh -huh. well, that's uh, really the equivalent of selling newspapers, of <laughs> starting sure out is, young. Absolutely. That's how you get started. What, do, what were you looking yeah. for in England? I was, I was, at that time, I was very interested in, uh, 
in uh, directing, and I wanted to go and, uh, well, I actually had a girlfriend in England. That's the real yeah. reason. But I, I wanted to uh, work and with... What did you sell her? You sold her something. Uh, I, know you sold her something. <laughs> I definitely sold her a bill of goods. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I spent a lot of time working at the regional theaters and, and, and working as assistant directors, mm -hmm. as an assistant director. But and then you passed through directing to become a producer, or are you still a director? Uh, well, I have directed a couple of things here in New York. We won't talk about one of them. One of them we could talk about. Uh, and I just found that, that my strengths were in putting the project together and not really in working um, so directly with the actors. Um, uh, and I enjoyed the process from beginning to end and the challenge of, of, the, of creating all the work and really being responsible for all of the decisions. Uh, and also I found it to be an easier way to get into the theater professionally because I could create my own work. By being a producer, I could say, I'm going to do this, and I did it, rather than saying somebody has to employ me, uh, which was really not my nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when I actually did start directing, I, I directed in England, and we had a success and brought the show over here to the Manetta Lane Theater mm -hmm. in uh, 1986, and Peter was the press agent on it. Mm -hmm. well, now getting into Damn Yankees, let's see where each one fits in, and when they came on board, starting with... Well, um, the... Brendan, do you want to take this and... and well, no, I was, no, I was you know, you, To Charlotte. I think that's a very good question. Yeah. But who was the first person? Well, obviously your sister, Victoria, had to be in at the very beginning. On Damn Yankees? Yeah, they were talking about the production, just yeah. the Damn Yankees, when you start putting together the whole group of people. But you've already been working... Yes. With, with how many of this group? All of them? Uh, well, Charlotte was really... Charlotte is the first person, the only member of this panel that had not done a project with us before. Mm -hmm. uh, we had worked with Rick before at Torino, and uh, Robert has represented us for 13, 14 years. I know it seems like 100. Uh, Peter has been working with us since the mid-'80s, and Victoria has been working with us for, for me with forever. And then Charlotte joined the team uh, in Damn Yankees in, I guess, May or June of 92. What was the team when she joined it? What, when you say join the team of Damn Yankees, well, what, what was it then? We decided to option Damn Yankees, I guess, in November, October, November of 91, uh, where we made our first inquiries to the, to the um, uh, whether the rights were available. We approached uh, George Abbott's representatives and we so that would be that would be Robert starting right, there. I guess one of the stories that's good about that is you said that you gave up baseball in 27. George Abbott's attorney, which is Mr. Colton, one of the scions yes. in our industry, has represented Mr. Abbott continuously since 1928. <laughs> okay, he's 89 years old. And so our first contacts with trying to obtain the rights were actually with him, who represents the owners. Of course, some of them are estates. Mr. Abbott has refused to let it be an estate, as he still owns it and yeah. still controls it. And that was Mitchell's dream, <laughs> is to say, how do we get this on? Well, what, what, what is the process uh, when you did that? I mean, you pick up the phone. I think everyone would like to know. What, what do you do, uh, apart from saying, we want to do Damn Yankees? It's actually the whole process of what an attorney does in terms of uh, getting the rights, et cetera. What? Attorneys are always responsive. Mitchell starts at first. He wants to do it. He actually contacted Mr. Abbott's representatives. But I happen to know uh, Mr. Colton for many years. His next call is to his lawyer. I represent him on all the projects spoke to Ed about the availability of the rights of doing this revival in New York City. Uh, at the time, there were other people interested in it, and we had to present our credentials as to why this package was better than any others, and they made that the election of going forward with us. What were those took credentials? Us, what did you have to present? I mean, this well, in terms of credentials, we're talking about the skills that uh, Mitchell brings to the, uh, the table of how he wanted this project to go forward, his dreams, 
because anytime you're doing a production, the dreams that you see on the stage really are broken down to a lot of different people. The authors, and here we had authors who are still alive. Okay, the director who eventually is brought on board. But the person who orchestrates it, as Mitchell was just talking about, is the producer. He's going to have to raise the money, and to raise money you have to have a dream you can sell, that you can give to people in a fashion that can understand why this deserves an investment. And that's a hard thing to do. I think when I first met Mitchell, I gave him an anecdote that was given to me years ago when I first started um, as an attorney in the theater business. A producer was sitting with me who will remain nameless, and he said, finding creative people in the theater was very difficult. Um, and I, being very young at the time, said, yes, the artist, the director, the writers, impossible. He says, nah, they're technical. Creative is raising the money. <laughs> um, and it is hard to do because that's truly a dream. Think about what you're selling. Something that's just going to be an image that isn't created just on paper. That's what we sell. And That's Mr. what we were able to do. That would have been Mr. Colton's first question, wouldn't it have been? It was. Uh, where are you going to get the money, or how do you get the money, or have you got the money? And uh, the first question is not have you, because they know it takes a long time. Mm -hmm. But uh, Mitchell and I, over the period of time that we negotiated, which was, I guess, from November to May before we actually had a contract, that's May of 1992, from November of 1991, uh, had come up with a way of doing this that was somewhat different in terms of bringing in a regional theater um, that could let us develop this old play into a modern version of that old play without violating any of its basic tenets. Uh, it happens to be a theater that I represent, and if they were not in California, I'm sure that Tom Hall, who's the managing director of the Old Globe Theater in San Diego, would be here because he and Mitchell were able to share the producer's dream and then bring in their artistic director, which was Jack O'Brien, to give it life. And when we did that, we were able to then show the underlying rights owners that we had a two-level structure that would give a great deal of weight and life to an old show. Two-level structure. Explain that a little bit. Well, we were going to do this show first at a regional theater that has a great deal of credentials, the Old Globe Theater in San Diego. Um, it was going to be directed by Jack O'Brien. I don't know when we brought Rob Marshall into the package. Much, much later, because uh, the, the, we weren't really sure. Did you have your capital then? Did you have to raise money when, when you sort of uh, Jack O'Brien and going to the regional theater? How far, how far along were you with capital? Package first is to have enough front money to do all of this so you're not mm -hmm. reaching into your own pocket. But then we actually created a double-level financing structure to do but this. in getting the rights, did Mr. Abbott want to know whether you had enough capital? No, he was willing to rely on Mr. Maxwell's abilities. That's one of the things that you're actually selling. Because to put the money away before the rights is impossible. In right. fact, you must have the rights okay. in place. And what Mitchell and I were able to formulate was a way of raising a significantly smaller amount of money that would be needed to do the show directly on Broadway to enhance the production at the Globe. Their production is their own, and their own artistic creation with Mitchell's input. Because unless it was going to be something that he wanted to bring to New York, it wouldn't be viable. And they the Old Globe didn't have any money for this. Well, since they produce 13 shows a year and have a very large budget, they would have enough money to do this <coughs> show, which they wanted to do in their own on their own agenda, right. to do a show much smaller, than that which would have shown us something warranting the move. Mm -hmm. So our offer to them, as has been done in a lot of projects, was to enhance their budget to allow the show to be done in a fashion that you could see the value from moving it. 
And they have a very high reputation. Um, the old Grove. And Jack has done a terrific yeah, job. And they're really director, wonderful people. Yeah. And Into the Woods was done this yeah. way years before this mm -hmm. and done creatively as well, Mr. Sondheim. What about Charlotte then? You're, you're at the theater. Well, it's actually before then because that's when we start doing those budgets that we bring in the general manager to tell us, gee, how many dollars are we really going to need? When I came into the project, Mitchell and Robert had already begun negotiations with the director, with the choreographer, with the star, and they were well on the way with the Globe. So at that point, we had to have a series of meetings with the Globe to find out what they were planning so that we could then determine what we needed to add to their production, and then on top of that, do a full-scale Broadway uh, budget. Now, uh, Charlotte, when, when you say a full, uh, and I, I understand the, a full-scale Broadway budget, which, of course, I understand. There are two, two, two questions and two things. Uh, do you uh, negotiate with the unions in terms of how many men uh, in each in, in the cases? That's one question. And also, how do you train to be a general manager? You can go in that order. Uh, well, the first one, uh, the second one I'll start first with. Um, I started out as a receptionist in the general manager's office and spent years learning the business and putting in long hours and working. And you really, the only way to train is experience. Uh, when I started, you couldn't go to college to learn any management courses. I don't think there were any at that time. Now you have them everywhere. And they're certainly valuable and helpful. And then after you finish them, you still have to go to a manager's office and work. Um, the the budgeting process and the negotiating process, usually you do the budgeting first with uh, an idea of what the negotiating will uh, involve, because that's the only way you can budget. Then the reality of what each item costs varies slightly once you actually start those negotiations. You don't get into numbers of people, et cetera, and except in terms of your cast specifically because you don't know what your physical production is going to be until you get there and that is determines the number of people you use but the size of the production in the old globe would be bound to be smaller just in physical terms with the stage and everything compared to broadway so does the designer so you have to bring a designer in very early i would think to say we're going to have two different well the, the physical the, the um the physical production of the globe was designed sort of to be uh by analogy um it, it was the suit that you buy, and um, it was the foundation. And then as we moved to New York, we added the haberdashery. We added the tie and the shirt and the pocket square, and we, we dressed it all up, and we made it Broadway-worthy. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we designed everything and budgeted everything that it was um, we added to what we had at the Globe. We didn't really throw anything out. Mm -hmm. And that enabled us to finance the show in a two-tier way where we committed $700,000 to the enhancement money at the Globe but really captured a great deal more value than the $700,000 as we went forward, which enabled Damn Yankees to be on Broadway for a number that is, f that we're very proud of, for a number that is far less than the average musical is hitting Broadway today. Can you, you tell, tell us what that is? Or not? I have no problem with that. Do I have a problem with that? Absolutely not. You should be proud of it. <laughs> uh, we, Damn Yankees came in for about $3.4 million. And the norm is what, Charlotte? I would say now they're going five to ten million dollars. Yeah, right, indeed. Mm -hmm. uh, also, this <coughs> is the next step is is Peter, and then then over to you, Rick. Which comes first? Yeah, uh, public Peter relations or, or advertising. I think most probably I came onto the team next in um, about I guess May of '93. I got a call from Charlotte saying that the Maxwells wanted me to work with them on Damn Yankees, and I like you know without a moment's notice said yes, I would be more than happy to. And then we announced the show in the New York Times that June. 
We wanted to do that before everyone went away for the summer so that people could learn about the project happening at the Old Globe. Their uh, performances began in September. Well, how did, how did you say you announced it in the Times? Uh, you didn't take an ad. Did you call up somebody? Mm -hmm. How do you do that? What, what goes on? Um, we put all the information together in an announcement release, and I sent that over to... The, at that point, it was Glenn Collins who was writing the Friday um, theater column. And then he did a, a terrific feature for us. And did you feature George Abbott? Oh, most definitely. <laughs> and actually, I believe it came out on his 106th birthday, which mm -hmm. was about June 25, which mm -hmm. I think is just about right. Because he's a fortunate addition to the whole thing. Oh, and most that, definitely. George Abbott is a saint mm -hmm. figure in, in newspaper publicity as well as other ways. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason that we, um, one of the reasons we went to the Globe, away from the financial uh, rewards of it, and the fact that we could work on the show out of town without the hot lights of New York and the pressures of New York, was that we did not want to do the original production of Damn Yankees. And in very complex negotiations with Ed Colton that Robert oversaw for us, we, we developed a situation in which we, we got the right, which is very unusual, to do whatever work we wanted to do on the book and the structure of the show and the, 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 the change of the order of the songs. We actually gave songs to different characters. Uh, we added a lot of material. We excised a lot of material. And we had an understanding with Mr. Abbott, Mr. Adler, who wrote the score, that uh, we could do really whatever we wanted to do in San Diego and if, uh, to show what we had in mind. And then they would see the show in San Diego and either disapprove or approve those changes. Our position always was that they were going to approve the changes. And we sort of said, let the, you know, let the torpedoes go and, and just do what we thought was the way to bring the show into the 90s. And um, we were fortunate enough that... Uh, they loved the show in San Diego. I'm not sure they loved everything that we did because it was change, and change is often difficult. But um, we had a meeting following the opening night in San Diego at Mr. Abbott's suite in San the Diego. The opening night where? In San Diego. Mm -hmm. It was uh, Mr. Abbott in San Diego at his suite. And he said uh, something to the effect of, uh, you have a big success, you have a big hit. It's not what I would have done, but who can argue with a hit? And uh, as we progressed to go over line by line, note by note, we, we stayed with his adage, which was, if it gets a laugh, keep it. <laughs> so that came back to help us when we were discussing, or for want of a better word, arguing about some of the things in New York. Uh, we constantly said to Mr. Abbott, well, you said, if it gets a laugh, keep it. <laughs> so there are several things in the show that he wasn't particularly wild about that get a big laugh that stay in the show. What's the original date of Damn Yankees in New York? It opened in 1955. So it's quite a long... It's, 19, it's 38 years yeah, ago. 38 years. God, that's a long time. And 90% of the material in Damn Yankees, uh, other than the structure and the story, is really markedly different mm -hmm. than uh, what we started with when we went to work in November of 91. Mm -hmm. Including the fact that there were, are no more, Brendan, you wouldn't know this, but there are no more Washington senators either. Fill me in. Yeah, right. Uh, but Rick, then, okay, now you are called in, obviously, to do, I assume, by Charlotte, right? Uh, or, 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 uh, can't remember. It was the summer of 93. Right. And you have uh, Damn Yankees, and what do you, given that, now you've got to advertise it, promote it, Give us an insight into your, you know, uh, your mindset. Uh, what what do you do in terms of knowing What's the, the show? What's the difference between advertising and publicity? Right. And how are you going to promote it? What well, do you glom on? Advertising to? is space that you pay for in right. various media, uh -huh. print, outdoor, broadcast media. Uh, 
it is also space that you can barter for. You can trade tickets for space or for airtime. Mm -hmm. And publicity is, are, through Peter's good office, is getting as much free space as you possibly can. So uh, the, advertising, the advertising budget of any show is a substantial part of the weekly operating cost of that show. And uh, uh, with Damn Yankees, um, we had sort of a luxurious situation, which was that there was an extant production that we were able to see long before the show was going to come to New York uh, in San Diego and, um, and sort of get juiced up about it. And uh, then to find what it is about this particular production as in as in any uh, as in anything that one advertises you try to find what is uh, to find and then exploit what is most compelling about that uh, in order to sell it to as many people as possible to as wide a range of in this case theater goers as possible and um, something that we wanted to do was make clear through the expression of the show in advertising that this was a contemporary look at a classic Broadway musical that it should not be considered a revival in the in the way that we used to think of as revivals before people used to um, to reconceive shows. Um, you can think of uh, s uh, successful revivals like uh, Guys and Dolls, um, Carousel, Damn Yankees, uh, on Broadway now, which uh, really have reinvented, have, reinv have taken something wonderful and reinvented it, put a different spin on it to make it uh, appealing both to an audience that would remember it from when it appeared originally, uh, and to uh, uh, the people who are going to the theater today, a younger audience, hopefully uh, with this show, we always wanted to attract a wider audience, an audience that, um, uh, for whom baseball had some appeal, as well as the traditional appeal of Broadway musical comedy. But it was musical comedy that was really the niche here. Uh, the, uh, in, in, in a rather crowded season last year, um, Damn Yankees found itself in, in many cases head to head with, a, with an excellent production of, of Carousel at Lincoln Center. Carousel and Damn Yankees were opening at about the same time and, um, and therefore we had to attract uh, as much a part of the theater going and, uh, audience as we possibly could uh, away from that show and to this show. And the, the primary way that we, uh, that we chose to do that was to focus on uh, the fact that Damn Yankees is a musical comedy. If you stand out on the TKTS line or in front of a theater at 7.30 and ask people what it is that they primarily want to see when they go to the theater, musical comedy is the first choice of most people. Musical comedy, therefore, we had to exploit. Carousel does not fall into that category. Um, we wanted to make it very, very clear that Damn Yankees was the show to see it, uh, if you wanted to have a great time. And it was also a show that was um, something that, since the, the, uh, the primary ticket buyers are women, this is something that you might drag your husband to, but at the end he would be glad that he came along. And that's not... Why do you say so. Carousel was not uh, the natural rival as a musical comedy? Well, it just happened to be the way the calendar fell. They were coming in at about the same time. They were both major revivals of, of great Broadway shows. Uh, Carousel had the added... Um, uh, the added advantage of having received tremendous amount of critical acclaim the year before when it was playing in London. Uh, it had the imprimatur of, uh, of uh, Cameron McIntosh and Lincoln Center. Uh, it, it appeared to be the press's darling at the outset of the season, and it was our job and Peter's job to, to both differentiate and maximize the appeal of Damn Yankees, uh, uh, which... One of the... Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. 
One of the things you also have to do uh, as soon as advertising begins is to be sure what your graphics are going to be, your logo, and all that. Now, sure, you, uh, sure. Now, how really, who who well, gets into that? All of you what get made you on yeah. come to that? How did you? Well, the the original image of Damn Yankees was was I I I believe uh, Gwen Verdon sort of standing arms akimbo and legs spread in in her little whatever Lola wants. Um, <laughs> what would you call that? A uh, bustier. And uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Isabel. And um, uh, uh, and um, it, we didn't want to uh, we didn't want to do anything that would be um, that exploitative with a show for for in 1994. And um, also, uh, what we did was we talked to people. Uh, we, t we we brought people up for random interviews and talked to them about the show. And when asked to describe the show, where did what people? We, we would stop, we, 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 uh, we regularly bring people up from, our offices are on Broadway, we regularly bring people up uh, with the promise of donuts and coffee to talk <laughs> about the theater and what, why they're interested in seeing what they're seeing, um, what it is about uh, an ad that appeals to them. You know, we, it's test marketing mm -hmm. in, a, in a, an ad hoc, rather unscientific way, but we do get to learn for a, uh, a low expenditure, what people who go to the theater are expecting and what they're taking away with them, which helps us go out. So, in that way, the, the window card and the well, logo it, was born? What people were describing about Damn Yankees was a Faustian bargain between a man who sells his soul to the devil to become a young baseball player. The character of Lola doesn't really quite fit into that precy. You have to get into a much longer conversation about Lola, who in this case was also the marquee name, B.B. Newworth in the show, um, before, uh, in order to make sense of that aspect. So we decided we wanted to reduce the aspect of the Lola character and represent her merely as uh, uh, the, uh, a, a pair of lips on the baseball and the damn Yankees title sort of arcing around it in a way that is reminiscent of the architecture at Yankee Stadium. Um, the lips, I can tell you, in that sort of trivia way that in years to come when people watch this broadcast, um, they, they may want to know that the lips do belong to someone on this panel. <laughs> and, uh, and, and she's free to raise her hand if she's interested. <laughs> I do it immediately. Uh, so did I. We all did that. I'd, I'd like to bring that up because now that we're... we're Is that on, when I'm, you first came into it, when they wanted your lips? <laughs> no, actually, I, I was I was at the meeting and I think I just had the most neatly applied lipstick that day. <laughs> she well, went out over a great many There were a great number people. of, of it's quite a competition, guys. Uh, I, I beyond that, although that that says I wanted to ask. Well, we uh, now Victoria. we now have everybody in place, and we we're up to your logo, and your window cards. Yes, and we haven't opened on Broadway. Let yet. me let me add one other thing that Damn Yankees had, which is really really wonderful. There's an old expression in advertising: you can't hum the announcer. Um, what Damn Yankees had as uh, sort of its flagship number, and um, and was tremendously exploitable through advertising is the song Heart. It's a song that everybody in, everybody in this country knows on some level. And uh, it is a song that because it's in the show, uh, we are able to use in the advertising for that show without having to pay the billion dollars you'd have to pay if you were Stouffer's and you wanted to use it for stovetop stuffing. So um, uh, we were able to uh, have the most wonderful jingle in the world um, in advertising, it's called jingles. You know, and, and on, on stage, it's called showstoppers. But it's the thing that gets people singing along in their cars or at home or while they're in front of the television. And they're, 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 it's great because what it does is there's a carryover. So long after the commercial is over, somebody still has that song caught in their head. And then it begins to act like a one-two punch. The next time they see the ad or the next time they see the poster, they think, that's right. That's what, I, that's what I'm interested in seeing.
There's something else I wanted to add about the artwork, too, is that now, in the 1990s, all shows, Broadway shows, do merchandising. And we wanted to choose a, a graphic image that was simple, an icon that could be put on T-shirts and jackets and baseball caps and keychains, and something that would really translate to a variety of media. So we went with this simple image that has worked beautifully on baseball hats and Victoria posters. Victoria does not get a royalty. I don't. I, I, you know, and I've been meaning to talk You're to you about that. You're getting bitterer and bitterer. <laughs> I really <laughs> am. Uh, but but now, who chooses the artist? You, you all, is it done in your in-house? This particular, uh, this particular image was done uh, at, at our shop, yes. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really depends. Uh, what, the, the same way you wouldn't necessarily you know, wear a tuxedo to a, to, a, you know, to a greasy spoon. You wouldn't necessarily go to the same artist regardless of what the production was. Right. So you try to find somebody whose particular skills fit the, um, fit the project. Then who makes a decision about targeting your advertising? How much media, how much television, how much radio? Um, we, have, we have many, many meetings to decide how the money is apportioned. And uh, Mitchell, Victoria, and their partners came with um, some tremendous deals in place for, uh, for uh, barter and, uh, and uh, trade, uh, which involved uh, uh, TDI. Do you want to you talk about yeah, this? Yeah. Um, we, we made a, a landmark deal on this show, actually. We, we were partners with a company called TDI, which is Transportation Displays Incorporated. And they own outdoor media and some cable television time and some radio time. For, we made a purchase for, of $100,000 of outdoor advertising space, and they in turn made a $100,000 investment in the production. Then for uh, participation on the general partner side of the limited partnership, they gave us $400,000 worth of free advertising space. That consisted of outdoor billboards, um, the sides of, sides of buses, was it? Sides of buses and some television and radio time. It was cable television on, on Manhattan Cable. To is put, that an to, unusual to that in, arrangement? Well, to put that in, to put that in context, it, it was a landmark arrangement. It was a landmark arrangement. to put it in context, a pre-opening budget for a Broadway musical um, it would, would rarely exceed uh, $750,000. So you're talking about $400,000 of that, uh, $100,000 plus another $400,000 uh, 400, that could be used toward that figure. It's just a, it's another example of good producing on their part to be able to keep the costs to the show down by finding ways to increase the budget without necessarily paying for it yourself. So they were gambling on getting their money back over a period of several years. That's right. Yes, they were. They were also, I think, uh, part of the relationship which Victoria helped forge was really about their desire to, for want of a better expression, give back to an industry that, that feeds their industry. And it really was... Um, an opportunity because of the the musical comedy aspects, the family aspects of this show, that all of their clients, all of their buyers, this was a great um, piece of work for them to be involved with, for them to sort of, you know, uh, uh, puff their chest out and say, we were responsible for this to some degree. We also were able to, because Damn Yankees was such a famous title, and it is ha does have baseball so much in its story, and Damn Yankees is not a story about baseball per se, story about passion and love. Baseball is just a the conduit backdrop. to that. Um, we were able to forge relationships that were very unique in our advertising um, with uh, Madison Square Garden Network, who broadcast the Yankees. And uh, we were also able to uh, make a deal with Topps Baseball Trading Cards. Now, who cooked that idea up? Because it's a brilliant idea to deal with MSG and all that. Well, um, we, we all sort of cooked it up. You know, it's, it, we, we all sat around and we said, all right, wh where do we take 
these, where do we take these ideas, where do we take the, the givens of this geometry problem, baseball and musical comedy, and, and how do we reach a different market? And uh, it was just a marriage of ideas between MSG, which broadcast the Yankees and um, was broadcasting the Knicks at the time. Mm -hmm. We traded tickets. We made a relationship where they were involved with the production. They gave us some television time. We then made the relationship with Topps Trading Cards, which and we, they printed up a beautiful, I wish we had them here, but they printed yeah. up a beautiful uh, set of 20 Broadway trading cards, which are really patterned after baseball cards. And uh, I was just yesterday that Peter set up, I was at the New York City Public Schools with Charlotte Amboise, who's now playing Lola, um, using these baseball cards to introduce young people to, to the theater. And we went uh, to a public school and we gave out all the baseball cards and all of a sudden this musical, which these kids have never seen, came alive in baseball cards, which they are used to relating sure. to. I can. I have. Well, that's I a have, wonderful idea. Yeah. I have something. Very, oh, I, I have some visual aids. <laughs> it's, it's, so not, it's not. It's not the baseball card. But it's an application of the baseball card idea in advertising, which is an example of why it was a good idea. Because when you, when ideas can expand out and and serve several masters, that's when they are really effective in the in in the selling of the show, and. Um, uh, the, be, before the, um, the Tony nominations, the Tony Awards, as Isabel said, of course, are given out for excellence. But we cannot deny, we, we who must market the theater, cannot deny the impact that the Tony Awards have at the box Economic, office. Yeah, I know. And um, it, it, it's our job to, um, to try, therefore, to um, do whatever we can to garner as many nominations for any particular production as that production could possibly get. And it was our, um, it was our best guess that um, that because of the crowded category of musicals and musical revivals in the 94 Tonys, that every nomination would really be hotly contested. And so what we wanted to do was, prior to the nominations coming out, campaign for them in a way that oftentimes in Variety you'll see a film campaigning for an Oscar nomination, For Your Consideration. Came up with a For Your Consideration kind of concept for Damn Yankees, which made use of the baseball card idea and, and tried that? to position anyone who could conceivably be nominated for a Tony Award for, uh, for this production of Damn Yankees was featured both picture-wise and the back of the card instead of, you know, we used the stats. The stats in this case or, you know, were the rave reviews that the individual had mm. received at the opening of the show. This ran the day before the Tony nominations were announced. So we hoped not only would it have impact at the box office, but it would also be the last thing that the Tony nominators would see as they went into their room to to uh, decide who would be nominated. Hopelessly suggestible group of people. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with you, Brendan, it, it, entirely about it, that. It couldn't hurt. It couldn't hurt was the, was the yes, theory. And even if, it had, even if it had no impact on the nominators, it would enable us to use a number 10 here when a week later we knew that people were going to be using numbers of their own because they would have their nominations. It's still an awfully good ad. It was, also, it, was also one of, it was also a good early use of color in the New York Times, which finally sort of got hip to the idea that every paper in the country had color except the New York Times. <laughs> How much more does that cost you in color? It costs, uh, it depends the size of the ad. A full page ad is a 12% surcharge, smaller sizes go up to about 20 20% above the cost of black and white. And what does that cost, then, the bottom line? What are the that ad costs $60,000. This is a $60,000 ad. So when you take into consideration the $400,000 we got from TDI, which is still out there on the highway and, mm -hmm. and on the buses and the, and the phones and the uh, train platforms, uh, it, was, it was quite an arrangement that we were yeah, fortunate enough to make. Too. Beyond that, it's an arrangement that the company didn't pay for. As Victoria said, this was something that the producers thought was important 
and they paid for it out of their participation in the show with no effect on their investors. Because if which you take a look at it, four hundred thousand dollars is better than ten percent of the budget of the oh show. Yeah, it's, it's one, one of the reasons why the show was able to cost three four. We got that four hundred thousand dollars without actually paying for sure. it. Uh, I wanted to pick up uh, Peter a little bit. Now that the show is open and it, it's it's running, uh, and you have obviously you interact with with Rick, but isn't your job now really to keep this going? And how do you do that? And I mean, when we say PR, that's to a lot of people kind of a what is that? I mean, what is PR? And you might go in and how? Because I, I assume your one of your major jobs is to keep this in front of the public. Is that correct? Definitely. And, and if so, how? Because once it's open, it's gotten the reviews. He doesn't have to talk now. <laughs> um, I think from the very start, we wanted all the publicity associated with the show to be fun, because we knew the show was very fun. So from the moment that the marquee went up with the world's largest illuminated ball, baseball... <laughs> Which we, we got Rawlings Baseball Company to pay for. Right. <laughs> um, we had you know television cameras there when this ball was dropped into place in Times Square. Um, we just have explored many different fun things associated with the show to explore through different uh, forms of media. I mean, from the, the ball to our relationship with opening the Yankees game, you know, the season game, to um, with the baseball season being uh, canceled this year, how we reacted to it. I mean, that's like one of the funniest stories and that Mitchell called and said they've canceled the season what can we do so as as I know everyone knows on this panel that uh, the dimming of the <coughs> marquee lights on Broadway is usually reserved for when dignitaries of the theater pass away we made it Broadway's uh, baseball's darkest hour and we had our marquees dim that night and brought the uh, baseball players out and put their caps over their hearts. <laughs> and we had no less than about 12 television crews, and this went across the country. One so the, it's, it's these type of things that we do constantly to keep the show out there. One of the best things that, that Peter arranged, and it was really so, so much out of another time, was um, through uh, actually my mother, who sells group tickets on Broadway, one of her clients wished uh, to ask his p uh, future fiancé to marry her. So uh, Peter arranged the whole thing at a matinee over the summer in which the, uh, Vicki Lewis, who played the reporter in the show, stepped forward after the curtain call and said she had a hot story right off the press and um, said, is this young lady in the house? And the woman stood up and, and she, uh, Vicki said, you better sit down. <laughs> and, um, uh, she, she said, this gentleman, I don't recall his name now, is at, would like to know if you'd marry him. And there were 1,500, we were sold out, we were 1,500 people there, and they all sort of went, oh. <laughs> and it was really just using, it was, again, it was really fun. And everybody, everybody in the audience talked about it. We got really dozens of letters about that they were participating in something so special. And so, that television coverage hit about 43 markets across the country. Oh, God. So it's just amazing how that, you know, can impact. Now, your mother sells tickets. What does your grandmother do? <laughs> <laughs> she sells my mother. Yeah. But, you know, I, I remember I was at opening day at Yankee Stadium. It was brilliant because I suddenly thought, wow, what, what a very good marketing thing because you had the chorus mm -hmm. dancing on top of the <laughs> dugout. That's right. Which was, and, and there you had... But 65, 55, or 65,000 people mm -hmm. knowing it was the course, and then the, and obviously the scoreboard had the whole thing, exactly. which I, I I didn't know that it was you, but I was mm -hmm. thinking, boy, that marketing is really good. But in that, that regard, in that regard, it's the good time that is the special effect, as it were, or the spectacle of of damn Yankees in the way that um, the, 
the, uh, the big shows have become about special effects like helicopters or chandeliers or tires going up to heaven or, or you know, big showboats coming out on stage, that sort of thing. The special effect of Damn Yankees is the great fun of the production and the audience genuinely has a good time. Sometimes that's just puff when you hear that about a show. The audience comes out of the theater having had a terrific time and that is a special effect that you can transport around to places like Yankee Stadium or you know the Thanksgiving Day Parade without much without losing anything because it's it's kind of contained. Let me take one step back. Um, where did you get your money from? Where did we get our money from? Uh, I called up all those people who bought stock when I was in college. <laughs> no, it's actually some of them did invest. We have 178 investors in Damn Yankees, which is more than I think any show on Broadway. Uh, we, we, we orchestrated the, the financing of the project uh, in a, a two-fold way. One of the things I wanted to do first was bring in a major uh, backer, a major investor, and we went and we made an arrangement with Polygram Diversified Entertainment which is the sixth largest entertainment company in the world, and we got them to commit 25% of the budget. And once we had that 25%, we sort of had the anchor in place, a foundation to go and raise the rest of the money from uh, 177 other investors. Most of our investors in the show are $10,000 to $25,000 investors. We also tried to do something which I'm very pleased that we were able to accomplish is I felt uh, one of the reasons that I optioned this play was that there was an article in the New York Times, uh, away from the fact that I, I wanted to do it and had an affinity for it personally, and I like what it has to say in the 90s, even though it was written in the 50s, was there was an article in the New York Times several years ago about Nick and Nora and how Nick and Nora had become such a debacle. And many of the people interviewed in that article were people of, uh, fortunately, of great means, of great wealth. And I, I took a, a sort of a personal affront to the fact that it takes more to produce a Broadway musical than great wealth. You have to have passion, you have to have taste, you have to have some sort of vision. And I decided, uh, after conversations with Victoria and then with Robert, that what we were going to do is we were going to bring in what, what we thought would be the next generation of Broadway producers who, although the numbers have become so staggering, we felt if we could find six or eight partners um, who would each commit 10% of the budget, which was a workable number, that we could, we could partner this thing and deliver a show on Broadway without uh, spending $10 million and without having shopping centers to back us up. And we were fortunate enough to do that. So um, we began that process by saying to people, look, why don't you invest some money in the development and enhancement in San Diego? And we use the expression that you, you got a cheap look at the whole card. You got to see what you were going to invest in in New York before you put up all your money. So we were fortunate enough to make uh, uh, alliances with six, uh, six people who have now become partners on all of our projects because it all worked out so had well. Had they been before or they came on? Basically, two of them were very, very small partners of mine when I, I did a play off-Broadway at the Orpheum Theater uh, called Oleana. And the investment there was very, very small. Uh, and two of them had worked on that with me. And four. What do investors expect to get? A, a profit or being the fun of, and glamour of being in the theater? Well, I think Polygram Diversified Entertainment would expect a profit. Would like a profit. <laughs> I, I, uh, I also think that everybody would like a profit. I don't think that anybody puts up $25,000 no matter how well-to-do you are and says, you know, fine, lose my money. So therefore, it's on your record that you're getting this kind of money. Yeah, I mean, it, you, it, your, your track record or your ability to raise money in the future is, 
is, is uh, if you've had a success in the past or successes, it is easier to raise money. But I do think that there are a great many people who are interested in the theater who are very willing to invest their money, and we know this is a difficult investment, invest their money, and as long as you deliver something that makes them proud uh, and makes them glad that they were uh, participating, they'll come back. Uh, they may not come back ten times, but they'll come back two or three times. How far is this now? The show is uh, uh, virtually almost in a year. Is it beginning to pay back now? With that? The show has, has paid back a good portion of its investment. Um, we opened on March 3rd, and it's now almost November, so we've been running about uh, eight or nine months. And we've paid back a good portion of the investment, and business is very brisk through the end of the year. And we think, with, we, we're very, very, I'm very sanguine that by shortly after the show runs a year, with the revenue from New York and the revenue from the road, the show will show a nice profit. One thing I got to ask way at the beginning, and you'll tell us where that comes in, the choice of the theater. Well, in our case, uh, in our case, <laughs> we had no theater. I mean, we, we, we were, uh, we said we had numerous discussions where we're we going to put this show, and this was something that Charlotte really had to deal with, which she can talk about in terms of you, you design a set for a specific theater. So she was up against keeping our options open. And we wouldn't have had a theater except for the demise of a show that never came in, and which was announced for the marquee. Right. And um, it, it then shut down out of town. It didn't come in. And we really had about four days <coughs> to... To begin looking at theaters is, and, and trying to make deals with theater owners. Yeah, Charlotte, why don't it's, you turn It's very <laughs> hard to uh, make a concrete deal with a theater owner as far ahead as we were. We started... I came on board in... Uh, the spring of 92, we weren't actually going to open until the late winter of 94. So you can speak to theater owners and you can get them excited and they'll put you in line. But they don't want to commit that early because they don't know if you're really going to happen and they can't tie their real estate up. We, our designer had designed for the La Fontaine Theater. And when we were getting ready to come in, it clearly wasn't going to be available. Um, we had a lot of theaters that we were juggling. There was a period where I'd make four and five calls a day to different, um, the general managers of different theater chains to find out, well, what will happen if this doesn't happen or if this does happen? And then all of a sudden, literally in about four days, Paper Moon canceled, and we knew we had our chance, and we knew we could fit into that theater. We went to Jimmy Needlander and made it happen. Can you tell us what, what the usual arrangements are with the theater? In terms of um, finances? Mm -hmm. Every theater will right off the bat charge you for their payroll package, which is the stagehands, the box office, the ushers, the porters, the ticket takers, the theater manager, uh, the doormen. And whatever that cost is for your show, you pay 100% of. Then they also will get a rent factor out of which they pay their real estate taxes and all of their overhead. Uh, they'll also charge you specific figures for things like insurance, uh, garbage collection, uh, the security people that take your money back and forth from the box office. And then they'll want some kind of a percentage that goes from dollar one or a certain dollar figure to be negotiated as their profit. Um, we were able to negotiate a very wonderful deal on the marquee because they were in a bind. They had a show that canceled and they needed to fill their real estate. And we just happened to be there at the right time. So it was fortunate for both of us. Did How you do that? that as a stage in terms of the width of the stage? And is it, is it, is I think it's a beautiful theater. Excellent. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful theater and it actually shows off our show very well because the theater is very modern and our show is very kitsch in a 50s kind of way. 
So it, it, it looks, the show looks beautiful in the theater, even though it wasn't really designed for a modern theater. The design yeah. team was nervous about the fact that it was a modern theater, and in their mind, a large theater as opposed to a small, intimate mm -hmm. theater. Plus, the senior designer had done Nick and Nora in that theater, so he was uh, psychologically not prepared to go back. But he ended up loving it. Can you down the budget, can you say, of what you're starting with your theater package? Can you give us some kind of a breakdown of your weekly budget, or how the you production budget? Well, I would think let's let's do weekly too. What does it cost a week, and how does it go bringing it in? I mean, both. You have so the, the production and the then the final. Yeah. Do you want to speak to it? It costs between three sixty and three eighty a week, depending on how much we spend on advertising and marketing in any Ed given moment. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Three hundred eight thousand. But how does that break down in terms of, of our, let's say artistic salaries, uh, crew? Uh, and advertising. Boy, can I, I have so many shows in my head. Can I actually remember the specifics of each remember. one? You remember <laughs> them. <laughs> the, 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 the salaries on Dame Yankees are about $104,000 a week, depending on what we gross, because the star percentages that's escalate that's that. The, um, the theater rent package, with all the things that Charlotte's talked about, comes down to about $125,000 a week. We spend somewhere, we've spent as much as $80,000 a week in advertising and as little as twenty-five. dollars right. Um, and then there are royalties, which are the minimum royalties to all of the creative people are $24,750. And those increase depending on the grocers. Uh, and then there are rentals of sound and lights and so forth and so on, um, uh, which are about $40,000. And in the number that we pay to the theater are the crew costs, the people who take care of the costumes and so forth. And then there's miscellaneous expenses uh, of cleaning the costumes and maintaining them and putting new people into the show. Uh, when somebody leaves, we have to rehearse new people, uh, rebuilding costumes, and then there's about a dollar and a half a week for the producers. <laughs> I can see the tears. Uh, but, but uh, uh, you know, Victoria, did you, because I can see when you, you were talking about the Rollings Baseball Company, uh, do you do a lot of this uh, negotiating, or is it... Uh, well, I did, on, I did on this show. I, there, it seemed, I think that doing musicals on Broadway in... In today's times, see, there's such competition for the entertainment dollar that you have to try to get your show out there in as many different mediums as possible and in places where you wouldn't expect to read about it. Like the Topps Baseball Cards was a perfect example because it brought the show into the attention of people who might not normally read the Broadway show pages. Victoria, so we. I'm sorry, I have to stop you right now because we've got the show out there and we have to just take a break. And then we're coming right back right. to talk about what happens now that the show is out there and what you've done. So stand up, stretch, move around, whatever you do, and come right back again, and we'll get to all the questions that we want to ask you. have really been most informative. This is a seminar on damn Yankees that we're talking about. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're continuing the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre, which is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And we've been talking about the production of Damn Yankees, that wonderful show that's playing on Broadway now. We have the team the whole producing team, and we've been picking their brains as to what it is and how it is to produce a hit play. We're going to continue right now with George White and Brendan Gill, and I think we've come almost up to the cost of the ticket. 
Shall we go on with that, or do we? Well, I wanted there was one before. thing as well we did at the break, which I thought was sort of fascinating because it relates to to uh, 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 the legal changes of something. It has to do with promotion. It's something Victoria told me about at the break, uh, which I think would be fun to share about the the novel. And then we'll get on to the price of the tickets because I think this is uh, it's fun to see. It's a brilliant idea to promote it and how these things can keep a show going. Well, it's just another example of uh, cross-promotion that we did on the show, but the musical Damn Yankees is based on a book that was written in 1953 called The Year the Yankees Lost the Pennant, and the book had been out of print for the longest time, and about uh, three weeks before the show opened, we got a call from the original publishers, W.W. W. Norton, and they said that in light of the fact that the musical was reopening on Broadway and there was all this attention focused on it, that they wanted to reissue the novel, but they wanted to reissue it under the title Damn Yankees with their famous baseball print artwork. So we had to go to the estate and request their permission, this is Mr. Adler, Mr. Abbott, and the estates of Douglas Wallop, um, to, to get their permission to retitle the book. And then, of course, we had to get permission from Rick Ellis to use the artwork on the cover of the book. But Wait, it was, did I get it? Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great because once the book was reissued and with this new artwork, the publishing company had it in the window of every bookstore because it was a big deal for them. And they gave us 2,000 copies of the book to use for various cross-promotions. So it was just another way for us to get our, our artwork and the name of the show out there in a different medium. And in addition to that, we were able to negotiate with the publisher where we mentioned that the book is in print um, in our ads. They pay, actually paid for some of our advertising. So we were able to, you know, what you see, you know, records available on such and such um, at the bottom of ads. They were uh, kind enough to pay for some of our advertising as long as we mentioned that the book was republished in our ads in small print. So we got additional advertising that the production didn't actually pay for. Who, who, from a legal point of view, when you were looking up the genealogy of the original thing, somebody at the Yankees had to give permission at the Bolt Club for the use of the name Yankees. Uh, Why? Wouldn't they have to? Are they in the public domain? Well, it's not in the public domain, but you're talking about them as to what they are, and you can actually use it. You can't use their logo without their permission, and we don't. Yeah. Um, I think we would have gotten permission if we had wanted to. Isn't it wasn't a on, choice. On some of the, uh, isn't it on uh, uh, some of the T-shirts? Isn't the NY on it, or is that a variation on it? I'm not that I'm aware of. It's a DY. It's a DY. It's a DY. Oh, right, of course. Of okay. course. See, that's damn Yankees. But no, in other words, just the way the author was able to write the book, okay, the year the Yankees lost the pennant, he was using it's called fair use under the copyright laws because he's referring to them as a baseball team. Mm -hmm. He's not trying to capitalize on them and he's not trying to advertise off of them. And that's in effect what we're doing here. Um, creative work has allowed that in lots of different ways in the copyright law. But you think in the 50s uh, to say damn Yankees would have had a pejorative effect. Huh? I'm sure that George now is very happy that they yeah. refer to that way, to tell the truth. So, yeah. But I don't know the 50s very well because I just was cheering the Dodgers. So is, there a different, uh, is there a different financial arrangement with an estate than to uh, the, an author and, well, and royalties? And you end up rights. having different problems in terms of dealing with the negotiations. And one of the great things, and Mitchell, though he went over it, the ability to allow people to make changes is very hard to get. And strangely enough, estates are less likely to allow you to make changes than a live author. Here we did have Mr. Abbott alive and he was very aware and saw a lot of shows. But are the royalties any different in payment? Than no, except that you sometimes have different groups to get paid. Um, we actually refer to our authors in this place by two different names. The authors are the people who wrote it 
and the owners are the people who get paid. Hmm. Some of the authors are no longer with us, some are, and the owners may be their estates, may be beneficiaries that now get paid. In terms of negotiating the numbers, however, the numbers are pretty much the same, though they're distributed differently. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, ticket prices a minute, because uh, I do think it's uh, on everybody's mind. Uh, as we go into even a new season where uh, I think there's been an escalation, uh, new play, a new musical just opened, I think the top ticket is now $75. What's your top ticket and how does that all go together? And Our top ticket is $67.50 on weekends and $65 on weekdays. Mm -hmm. And we recently raised the prices to $67.50. And the answer to the question that you would ask is because we could. Because what? Because we could. And because uh, the expenses on a show are so enormous that on a Saturday night with a, a, a hot ticket, it's a, su a supply and demand. Supply and demand. And uh, I would rather that we didn't have to, um, but uh, we did. Mm -hmm. Also, what is your low ticket? Fifteen dollars. Mm -hmm. How do you get that? Uh, well, we we have a large theater, mm -hmm. so we when we scaled the house, when we talked about it, we wanted to make sure that there were a certain number of tickets available at a very low price, and $15 is about as low as you could go. Uh -huh. So if you want to see Damn Yankees, you can buy a ticket for $15. It was just really an arbitrary choice. I mean, the, the Between financial... the 15 and the 65 or 67, what is there? There's, uh, Charlotte, what is 25? 35, 45, depending on whether it's the weekend. You have that sliding There's scale. There's a definite uh -huh. progression. How big is the hub? 1,596 seats. Mm -hmm. So is it the third or fourth largest in New York? It's one of the top five. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's one Do you have a student ticket price? $15. That's a student. And then we have special student rates for groups, and we have special student programs, and uh, those, so, those sort of prices are flexible <coughs> for students. And we do have a very good student policy for any, any uh, seats over 20. What, um, what forces you to make that uh, 65 or 67.50 price? What forced us to do it? Yeah. Well, I, I don't think that it was a question of forcing Well, I mean, us. what comes into it? That, well, he that, told that, the truth because they could, they did. No, well, but before that, before you come to, to sixty-five, how do you, mm. how do you rise sixty-five? Why not? Why not thirty-five? Why not forty-five? Uh, in other words, I think we're saying we're, we're starting out. Cost. I don't think any producer today opening a show on Broadway even considers a price less than sixty-five for a musical. That's the price that musicals are getting. There is a perception in the marketplace that if musicals are getting $65 and you charge 45 that there's something wrong with your show. So, as silly as that may sound, it's the truth. So you really... Could, if you could charge 45 and you could overcome that with your advertising and your version, could you do that? You well, couldn't make money, no. No, okay. you could not. I think, that, you know, you start out, it's, it's a simple calculation, is we have X number of seats, 1,596, eight performances. This. We're going to multiply that out. We're going to Based say how much it costs us. 90% or 100%? Well, start at gross. Okay, okay, maximum gross potential. Okay, measure that against um, what it's going to cost us a week, which we talked about at $380,000. And then I have to go to an investor and say, investor, this is how long it's going to take you to get your investment back at 100% of capacity, 90% of capacity, and 80% of capacity. How do I sell that? That's where the ticket price comes from. It's interesting, Charlotte brings up this point that if you charge $45, the public's perception is that there's something wrong with you. And we talk about that a lot in the advertising meetings, that it's very, very discouraging because there are times where you could charge $45 or have an inclination to do it on specific performances at certain times of the year. And it always comes out that in I know, these I discussions... I think that's a misconception. All the people that I know I've talked to, whether 
on the, in the bus or in my living room, say, if only the price was less, I could we, go to the theater more often. I we, used to go. Nobody if says everybody's know, price we, was we less. We know, we know that there are many more people who would like to go to the theater than can afford to go. And um, including some of us <laughs> up here, uh, it's, it's expensive, even for us, to go to the theater. Um, and uh, it is, uh, and it should be more democratic. You're absolutely mm -hmm. right. The, um, the, the awful catch-22 is that in order to be responsible to your investors, you can't, it, you can't have a, a show that you can't expect to pay back in five years or six years. You have to, you have to be more responsible than that. Mm -hmm. And if the costs of putting on the production are so exorbitantly high, you have to be able to reliably and responsibly make an, an appeal to someone for, you know, that you're asking for money from to say, it's, it's not going to, you'll still be alive at the time we can pay you back. Isabel, and one of the sessions you should have is to invite the people from the League dealing with the Alliance, which is a way of hopefully bringing inexpensive productions of straight plays to Broadway with low ticket prices. And what Charlotte has just described. But you know what's happening with that? You know what's happening problem. with that, Robert? Is that there's a cap on? Okay, there, there's an example. That's there's right. a there's a six hundred fifty just went up to seven hundred thousand dollar production cap on the, on the alliance, and there there was a, a thirty five just went up to thirty seven fifty for ticket, advertising. No, 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 ticket price. Ticket price oh. Top price thirty seven fifty on weekends, thirty five on weekdays. Now that same production can be done for five hundred thousand dollars off-Broadway and you can charge off-Broadway whatever you want. So that's what's happening now. There's a trend begun uh, or recently publicized by uh, Neil Simon taking his first off, taking his off-Broadway uh, uh, off -Broadway, uh, theater for the first time for one of his plays. It's going to happen because off-Broadway you can charge $45 or $50. Mm -hmm. The same thing that's happened on Broadway will now start to happen off-Broadway because Why that's is where that? the Why is, is it going. if you can charge that off-Broadway and they don't think, oh, because it's because cheap you've got I'm a, getting... you've got a 500-seat theater and you can use the best copy line, the best advertising slogan that's ever been invented. <laughs> Sold out, you can't get a ticket. If you, and and if I, it's easier to be able to say that and more often in a 500-seat house than in a 1,596-seat well, house. Would you go off-Broadway, Mitchell? I own off three off-Broadway theaters. Yes. And I produce, I've produced extensively off-Broadway. Uh, when you made your decision for Damn Yankees, it was definitely for a Broadway house because of the largeness of oh, the whole absolutely. thing. And also because of what we were trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. right. There are certain shows that, uh, that really shouldn't be produced on Broadway because the expectations are too high. And the ticket prices, no matter what you do, are going to be at a certain level that you have to deliver a certain event mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> off-Broadway. Uh, the perception of what you are expecting is sort of less, and you can um, deliver what you're expected to deliver in an off-Broadway house at a lesser price. Also, I mean, this is a very long discussion, but but the unions, the union situations. You can only give eight performances well, a week. Let, let me let me. You can only have a thousand seats in your theater. Yeah. Yeah, this is where I'm going. Yeah, you're right. It's I mean, a if you could, we, we have we have we have curtain times at eight o'clock for some arbitrary reason. They used to be at eight thirty. They used to be at seven thirty. We have matinees at two because long ago women tended not to work, and so they were available to go to the theater at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We picked a Wednesday. Now, that's no longer the case. Everybody dies at their 2 o'clock matinees on Wednesday. Oh, you you want to be able to put on you want to be able to put on a Peter Pan at a different time than a Tom Stoppard mm -hmm. play, you can't do it because it, there has to be a certain a number of hours between performances, a certain number of hours between matinee and evening, a certain number of hours that and actors need to rest. you negotiate with the unions such as General Motors did? It's their industry. 
if they're going to continue this way and if the theater is going to continue, it will only be events and spectacles. Well, Charlotte, I, I think it'll come to that. Can, can you t give us a sort of a, uh, here in, uh, in, in 1994, what is the, uh, let us say, the union minimum for Iatsity stagehands and 802? What are the, there are minimums. There are minimums. For, for, what, what are those, just so we know, and, and things like beaters or... All, all those, the, I mean. uh, a stagehand gets a union minimum. You have two kinds of stagehands. You one, you have ones that work for the theater and ones that work for right. the show. Right. The ones that work for the show, I think their minimum is officially on paper about $500 a week. You won't get one of them to work for you for that kind of money. What's the difference between working for the theater and working for the show? I don't understand. Uh, the only difference is who their employer is and who pays them. The ones who work for the show, it started because of touring shows and when you go into a different town every week you have to have a stagehand who knows when the fly cues are pulled and he tells the locals pull that one, pull this one, pull that mm -hmm. one. It's held over and you do it in New York even though it is slightly a different situation. So that's at 500 minimum, and they don't right, work for that. Right, but none of them work for right. that. They they earn between 12 and 1400 dollars a week um, per, as opposed per to man. And then they can tell you how many must work that show. They can basically the, when you set the show up, there are very um, there are rules that are really not written down clearly as to how many people you need to do how many jobs. It has to do with how many different things are happening once on the fly mm -hmm. floor. Say, sure. if you have eight things moving at once, you need eight men. You can manipulate that to a certain extent, and when you get down to a crunch, you have to really negotiate each separate situation with um, the union head and bargain it out. Well, let's talk about musicians, too, the 802 local. What is their minimum? I would say there's is approximately $800 a week, and then they get certain increments if they play doubles, more than like they play two different kinds of clarinets, you add on to it, et cetera. So that most musicians are making probably between eight and $1,200 a week. There's also a different minimum regarding musicians, and that's the number of musicians you have to have, which is that's based right. on the house, not based on your artistic that's right. needs. And that's where we have the famous walkers. Yes. Right. And if we talk about ticket prices and what one can do about them, Rick's address the fact that there, as the society has changed, performance time should change without productions being penalized by old, stale union mm -hmm. requirements. Also, we have, we've, we've had a situation in Dame Yankees in which we have actually laid off uh, IA men because as the show evolved, we realized we could have cued the show differently and we didn't have to keep somebody to do one cue. And you, you could do that? To, uh, it, it was, was very, not easy. It was very, very... I was going to say, that must have been quite yeah, well, what, what, what That was an, a, an accommodation that you were able to, to make. Can't you go further with them? We could actually go further in terms of what physically is capable. The union won't allow us to go any further because mm -hmm. they feel we should have made these changes before we opened and mm -hmm. not now. We feel that we should be able to and learn And what's the reluctance to the change in time that would... would of, of a scheduled timing. What about matinees? dropping the matinee altogether? Well, if you drop the matinee, then you have to, uh, you have no day off. Because mm -hmm. you, the actors have to, so have, they have, have, to have a day off. So if you drop the Wednesday matinee and you made it Monday night, they'd play seven shows, seven nights a week. I think matinees, it, it looks to me, it seems so important. I always get so excited when I go down 45th or 44th Street on a matinee day and see the crowds of people that are running. You know, coming from Broadway, from the marquee, all the way down on matinees. It My to favorite me show is a matinee. My favorite show to see of Damn Yankees is a Wednesday matinee, particularly in the summer when it was so full of kids. Yeah, well, I think it's not. I think what Rick is saying, it's not necessarily the women who can now go. I think a lot of different uh, people go. And I'm not go. talking about the summertime either, because no, it's exactly, everything changes yeah. in the summer. Sure. 
But uh, uh, what, I, what I meant to say was just the notion that every show across the board, with, with minor variations, must play the same schedule is, uh, is absurd because Peter Pan should be able to play five shows on Saturday and Sunday because that's when they can sell the most tickets and not be and not play on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday because they're school nights and no parents are going to take their kids or to Or Beauty the and the Beast. Is yeah, it right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not trying to mention shows that are on right now. I'm but sorry. I, but, 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 you know, I mean, a, a serious play, a serious play that, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, which is inappropriate for children should not have to play five shows on a on yeah. a weekend or it should be on three uh, years i remember years and years ago um a show from long ago called starlight express was playing they couldn't sell tickets on a tuesday night and we went for about eight weeks to every tuesday night performance and interviewed the people who were there giving them a choice of alternate times and 65 to 1 the people in the audience were um, uh, picked Saturday morning at 11 o'clock for that show now you can't do a show Saturday morning at 11 o'clock because you'd have to hire a completely different cast of actors because of the actors unions and the actual point example. is freedom of choice we don't have much freedom of choice everything is sui generis it's specific people acting times um, if you want to do something for the theater just a little piece that nobody understands the ABC ads many people get their times from the ABC ads and the New York Times. It's surprising to people that we have to pay for those ads. The motion I was just talking companies... about during the break, the movie clock for film studios that have advertising budgets of or combined a billion dollars a year at least is a free service in every newspaper in this city. The theatrical directory is not. A little, a little pishky off-Broadway show that has to scrape together $10 a week to be able to promote itself Nine dollars out of that money has to go to get itself into a directory, which is perceived by the public as a free service. How did that come about? The well, that's Times different. That's money. like that's that's another that's seminar. That's and we go back to what Mitchell said. We're they going could. to have a, a lot of the questions <laughs> that our audience is going to ask, and, and so talk amongst yourselves now until they get started. <laughs> we have a question. I have a question for the marketing people, both the advertisers and the uh, press rep. Um, First of all, I'd like to say that I'm a former Washingtonian, and I was a uh, fan of the senators before <laughs> uh, the Griffiths moved them out of town. Um, and I wondered, uh, I know that this is not something that you've had a problem with with damn Yankees, but we all know that bad reviews do happen, um, and they are said to be the cause of closing shows early sometimes. Um, what strategies do you have that you've used successfully to either overcome those reviews when they do happen or to indemnify yourself against them beforehand? Are, are there things you can do to keep a show running um, in spite you of You mean that? with the mixed review? Mixed or, reviews, uh, poor reviews, mediocre reviews, Peter, rather than the raves that you all got. I think what we have to do on with almost every show, if the show gets good notices or bad notices or mixed notices, you just have to explore different elements of the production to further um, highlight. If it's, uh, you know, the costume designs, the sets, I mean, we, we, on publicity angle, we try to explore all those elements. Um, for reviews and getting people into the theater right away is really much more of a, a Rick question in that the advertising plays a much more immediate, has much more of an immediate impact on getting, if it's going to um, take some uh, uh, attention at the box office. We, I, 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 can, I can say it quickly in... in um in this way, we try to uh, and we try to anticipate that every show. There you are. We try to anticipate every show um, to be uh, as huge a success as it possibly can be, but plan for it to get 
for a show to get unanimous pan reviews. That way, we're, not, we're never surprised, uh, we're never uh, left with our, uh, with our pants down by s reviews that we haven't been expecting. It's gravy if we get great reviews, and Damn Yankees got, happen to get great reviews. Um, uh, but you can't go into promoting a project thinking, gee, well, you know, we really should hold everything back until after to make, you know, we'll see what happens. Because you never get a second chance to make a first impression. The first impression that a show has to make is that you can't, your life will somehow be improved for seeing it and you'd be crazy to miss it. And, uh, and, and that's how we try to approach everything that we do. Thank you. My question is probably for the Maxwells and Ms. Wilcox. Uh, Ms. Rell has talked about how audiences are going to shows nowadays uh, more for the spectacle oftentimes than for the content of the actual show. Uh, on, by contrast, you have a lot of shows uh, that have uh, several shows have just announced that they'll be cutting stagehands uh, and also cutting certain uh, scenic elements and simplifying them to cut costs. Uh, how do you reconcile an audience's desire to see something impressive with uh, the need to cut costs uh, on, your, on your set and on your various production budget? Well, uh, first of all, I should say, just for the record, that, that uh, Damn Yankees delivers um, uh, all of the, the excitement of a big Broadway musical. It just delivers it in a more human way. Um, when I talked about laying off a stagehand, I talked about it because what we discovered after the, intense, the intensity of opening a show, with the technical aspects being um, uh, resolved at tech rehearsals and dress rehearsals and previews, with the clock running and hemorrhaging money every day, when you have some time and space to look at that, you could say, I could have done that better. I could have cued it differently. It doesn't look any different to the audience, but I can save manpower. I can save some money. We did Damn Yankees really as a, uh, as a show to go against the, the, the huge special effects. We think Damn Yankees is, is and was and will be a show about heart, which is the theme song, and it's about the, the redemptive power of love, and it's about how uh, uh, in the heat of passion, one can make a mistake and make a, uh, a deal with the devil, whether literally or uh, uh, euphemistically, and how one, through the redemptive power of love, can overcome that. And those are universal themes, those are universal stories that have been told you know, for 2,000 years. So if you deliver the humanity of something, I think that the audience can be touched, can be moved, and doesn't miss all that scenery. So um, I just think it's in the delivery of the product. And also, from an economic point of view, uh, we started with a number where we, that we said, this is what we can spend on the show, and as a fiduciary, have some realistic hope of returning <coughs> this money, and then have the ability to do another show. So we didn't start with an $8 million number and say, okay, let's hope that we get the greatest reviews since, uh, you know, whatever, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be fine. We Would took a different approach. Um, this question is for Charlotte Wilcox and Victoria Maxwell, and this billing has nothing to do with your respective ability and importance. Uh, what are the numbers? Are there many women producers and general managers? Well, I think, Charlotte, you're the, you're the biggest female general manager. Well, this, this uh, decade. You're the most prominent. <laughs> there, there have never been that many female general managers. You get two or three um, you know, every generation. And I suppose with every generation you'll get more and more, but uh, it's not a large number. And producers, the same thing. I think there's more and more female producers now, um, but I, I know that Mitchell and I are the only brother-sister producing team in New York right now. I have to say here that uh, Antoinette Perry was a woman, and she was a producer and a director. I don't think she was a general manager, but that's how the whole 
Tony Award started. So right. she was a woman before her time, and, and uh, I had to bring that in. Yes. Well, this is a question for the producers. Uh, have you ever, or would you ever, uh, contemplate putting to, being active in putting together a creative team? In other words, if somebody came to you with a great idea for a musical, uh, would you then say, uh, would you go ahead and put to, uh, find the composer, find the lyricist, oh, if you've got a good book writer? That's what we do. I mean, that's in essence, that was all, all, the only difference between Damn Yankees and a new show is that it was written, but we had to start with the underlying material, and then we brought the creative team together, the designers, the director, the choreographer. And Other than Damn Yankees, have you done that before? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Often. Often. We've done it on stage and on film many times. The producers are always Thank looking you. for a good idea. Yeah. My question, you mentioned that you got the special, the special right to change the book, which you don't always get. And my question is, what were your, uh, what were your concerns as you updated it for the 90s? And then what was the team you put together? Who actually made those decisions creatively? Um, well, our concerns were simply that the show was written in the 50s. Uh, initially, uh, and there were two, two major concerns. One was that musicals were written in the 50s in a different way than they are written today. The theater didn't have the technology in the 50s to, to move scenery out of the floor and out of the wings in front of the audience. So 50s musicals, and they were considered George Abbott musicals because he created it, were performed in front of a traveler where they set, changed scenery behind the traveler, so we had a lot of in-ones. Um, we, we were concerned about the old-fashioned quality of that uh, technical approach. On a, on, a book, on a book level, we were concerned that the, the, the attitudes toward women, particularly in, when the book was written, were no longer going to fly in the 90s. Specifically, and just by one example, the wife in Damn Yankees is abandoned by her husband, who goes off to be a baseball player. She never is, she's never angry. She never asked why or where he went. <laughs> she was comes, never angry. She was never angry. <laughs> and when he comes back at the end of the play, he, she says, don't, he says, don't ask where uh, you, I've been, and she says, fine. Now, we felt That's that, the 90s, not that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so we changed that kind of thing, and the work was done with Mr. Abbott and with our director, Jack O'Brien, who actually adapted the book. Mitchell, thank you very much, and, and thank you so much for being here. This has been one of the most informative seminars I've ever had on this panel here, and these people have been telling us all about Damn Yankees here, the production team, and it's been a marvelous lesson in, in how to produce from every angle. I'm most grateful to them, and I think you've all learned a great deal, as I know I have. This is the American Theatre Wing seminar on working in the theater, and this seminar was on the production and the production team of the show Damn Yankees. It's coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you.